Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to have with us Dr. Brooke Lanfear. Brooke is a sports psychologist and has recently completed her PhD dissertation on the external influences of body image in women on body image, sorry, in women with physical disabilities. Welcome to the podcast, Brooke. Hi, Liz. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to, to have you here and well done on completing a huge project. I know there was a lot involved in your PhD and trying to work at the same time through most of it. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and particularly in working with para-athletes? Yeah, absolutely. Goodness. Well, thank you so much. I am very glad to be done. I have to say it was quite the slog. Mm-hmm. And uh, I learned a ton along the way, of course. So onwards and upwards from here, hopefully. Um, But a little bit about myself. As Liz said, I earned my PhD in counseling psychology at the University of Denver in Colorado in the United States. And I have a master's in sport and performance psychology and have always been passionate about working with athletes, both in sport psychology and and more health-oriented settings. Um, I did recently complete my certified mental performance consultant uh, certification through the Association for Applied Sports Psych as well, which is great. Um, And this will allow me to really use my specialty training in sports psych to support athletes in a wide variety of settings. Um, So it's another big milestone for me. Great. But in terms of my training with para-athletes, I had the, gosh, wonderful pleasure and opportunity to work with the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, um, in particular with Dr. Sarah Mitchell, who Liz and I know well, and she's the lead sports psychologist for U.S. Paralympics. I worked as a student trainee sports psychology consultant um, under Dr. Mitchell's supervision for almost two years and was embedded with two Paralympic teams, also provided individual uh, mental health assessments and performance enhancement services to athletes in a variety of different sports and it was a life and career changing experience that I'm super grateful for. And those two sports, that was men's wheelchair basketball and women's sit volley, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are my two teams. Yeah. And, and so what, what was your experience like with them? I think, you know, you certainly went into the men's wheelchair basketball program having, with them having had not so much sports psych background. Uh, how was that? Yeah, that's a a great question and observation, Liz. I found that sport psychology services, um, both with Paralympic athletes and more broadly, the nature of services really depend on the needs of the team or the individual that you're working with. So uh, all of the groups that I worked with in my training role with the USOPC um, had very different experiences with sport psychology very different needs in terms of what they wanted to work on and how they wanted to grow as a, as a group and, and as individuals. Um, and as such, I, I shifted my framework and my perspective to kind of meet folks where they are, which is generally, uh, from my experience, the best way to practice. Mm-hmm. It's important to tailor um, our intervention to the individual needs of the study. Yeah. And so can you give us a couple of examples of the type of work that you were doing both individually and as as the whole team, just, you know, obviously not getting into individual people, but just the type of work that you do as a sports psychologist. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked this question. I think there's a 
lot of misunderstanding in our field around what sports psych actually is and who can provide what services and all the providers in our field have many different backgrounds in terms of training and expertise and, and focus and services. So I, I always think it's, it's so important to kind of start here um, with any clients that I work with. But in general, you can kind of assume that sports psychology practitioners, as many high performance staff are, um, are really interested in understanding and optimizing sport performance from a psychological perspective. So on the ground, what this looks like is typically both individual and group training um, and methods and particular skills to assist performers or athletes, depending on the setting, and essentially maximizing their training and, and optimizing performance. Mm-hmm. So with my two Paralympic teams, my level of engagement varied, again, based on the needs of the athletes. With one of the teams that I worked with, I attended training camps and competitions regularly, provided both brief interventions and kind of professional consultation with coaching staff and dietary staff, both on and off the court. I also had the distinct pleasure of working with athletes on a more long-term basis, right? So working with individuals on each of the teams, whether it was meeting weekly or uh, a couple of times a month to develop their individual high-performance mindset yep. was a really wonderful way to supplement the work we did on the court. Yeah. And so, you know, I think there's a, a misconception that you only see a sports psychologist as a bit like nutrition. You only see a, a sports dietitian when there's something going wrong. You know, it's similar. I think there's a bit of a fear or a, a nervousness about sports psychology because it's, you know, a lot of people take it from the, the negative side of things that there's something going wrong and needs to be fixed as opposed to being proactive in terms of generating that that real mindset about performance. So is that something that you've experienced in terms of some of the athletes not being willing to come and see you? Oh gosh, absolutely. There is so much stigma surrounding any sort of psychological experience in sport, right? I think kind of traditionally in the United States, but I think this translates to a lot of different cultures, athletes in team sport settings are essentially socialized not to speak to any negative experiences that they might be having, whether that's doubting themselves of their ability to perform, whether it's fear of returning to play after injury, whether it's concerns of their body, concerns of their confidence, conflict with a teammate, right? I think many of the athletes are socialized to kind of push everything aside, power through the Mm -hmm. veins, and show up and figure out a solution on their own, right? And a lot of us who work in the sports psych realm in the U.S. have been working really hard to try and uh, undo some of of the harmful effects of stigma surrounding mental health and sports psychology in elite sport in particular. Because when it comes down to it, like elite athletes are there for a reason, right? Like they are clearly skilled, talented, have committed and demonstrated a lot of grit in the pursuit of training, rigorous training schedules, right? Long-term goals that probably they have dedicated most of their lives to. So there is a lot that's working for most of these athletes. And what is really great about sports psychology is that it doesn't have to necessarily be about identifying what's wrong and fixing it. It can be about identifying what works and helping to strengthen those skills. Like I, I often worked with athletes in the moment on the court to take a moment to pause remember what they're good at, what their goals are in a specific setting, and then tailor their actions to that, right? Like play to your strengths. Yep. That's, that's a huge piece of the work that we yep. do. Uh-huh. Perfect. And so 
have you, I mean, have you done much work with Olympic athletes versus Paralympic? Is there much of, do you see much of a difference when working between the two sides of elite sport? Uh, gosh, Liz, that's such a good question. And um, one actually I've gotten a lot. I think really what we know from the research and, and what I know anecdotally is that Paralympic and Olympic athletes are much more similar than different. Mm. Right. Yep. You know, like maybe they prepare for their competition in a different way. Maybe they have different life experiences, right, that kind of shape their relationships with themselves and their sport. But that's true of any individual, regardless of ability status. And it's important to me in my practice to really treat Paralympic athletes as elite athletes first yep. in, a, in a lot of different ways. Right. And, and then we can zoom out and, and incorporate all the other aspects of functioning that make a human a human. Yep. Um, but but that's been my takeaway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can we look a little bit more closely at your PhD and, and the topic that you covered, which was body image and that side of things. Can you give us a little brief appraisal about what the purpose of the research was? Absolutely. Um, so I think most folks have a good understanding of, of what body image is. And what I've noticed throughout my training is that body image or our relationship with our body, right? The way we think about our body, the way we feel about our body and how we take care of it is not something that's really part of mainstream preparation mm-hmm. in elite sport, right? It's, it's often something that's kind of taken for granted or not talked about. And um, I noticed many athletes that I've worked with in a variety of settings really struggling in particular after a loss or after an injury, right, after some performance setback to really kind of uh, figure out like what that means for them and, and how they feel about themselves as a result. And this often shows up for folks in um, negative body image mm-hmm. uh, or social comparisons with other athletes, right? And and we can kind of go down the train there of, of how that manifests. But in general, my, my hope in, in conducting my dissertation research was to really look at the specific effects of an athlete's social environment, both in and outside of sport, on both positive and negative body image in women athletes with disabilities. Yep. So we included athletes from all levels of competition, not just Paralympic athletes, but the majority of our sample did identify as elite and professional athletes, which is rare. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of research on mm-hmm. body image in populations with disability, and, and this is a gap that needs to be addressed from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got a very unique group in your research itself in, in that you were looking quite specifically at the more elite end. And so can you give us an idea of what sort of questions did you ask? Was it a survey or were there interviews? Like, how, What was the process? Yeah, would it, would it be all right too if I speak a little bit to the theory behind yep, my absolutely. research that might help kind of clarify yep. what it actually looks like? So my project in particular, because there isn't a lot of research in body image in populations with disability, let alone athletes with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, we pulled from really well-established and validated theories in, in other areas of psychology. And the one that I, I kind of used as my grounding framework is called the tripartite influence model. And this is a model that examines the effects of social pressures surrounding weight and appearance on both body image and disordered eating. Yep. Um, so this model essentially says that Athletes or women or people in general experience all of these pressures from different social forces. Some of these forces are macro or big, right? Like the messaging we receive in the media surrounding body image and weight. And some of these are really small, right? Like maybe pressure 
uh, from a coach to lose weight mm -hmm. or pressure from peers or significant others to look a certain way. Yeah. Um, and our experience of these pressures um, has been found to significantly and directly predict the way we feel, think about, or perceive our bodies. So that's body image. Yeah. And this model also holds that the degree of negative body image experience, which in the psych research we call this body dissatisfaction, right? so being unhappy with your body um, for whatever reason, the degree of body dissatisfaction experience is a direct and really strong predictor of disordered eating behavior. Right. Yeah. So these are unhealthy eating behaviors that, that can and cannot lead to an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, so what, what our goal was here was to really see if this model holds true in a population with disability, right, particularly in the context of sport because it's never been tested mm -hmm. um, in that domain. And sport is such a unique social environment yeah. that brings with it a lot of different stresses and pressures specifically related to body and weight. Yeah, there's an extra layer on top of what the general population experiences in terms of, you know, the, totally <laughs> where those pressures come from and the expectation of what a body should look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, athletes with disabilities and athletes more broadly tend to have different body images, mm -hmm. right, where in social settings, they experience their body one way and experience very it very differently in yep. sport. That was another important piece of my research. I really hope to look at the specific social processes in disability sport that had an impact on athletes' experiences of body image with the hope that we eventually, as a, a high-performance culture, um, can start to make some changes that, uh, in the way that we interact with athletes that will help to enhance body image instead of create more negative experiences. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so, again, did, were they surveys that they did or were they interviews that you did? Like, what was yeah. the process for the research? Yeah, thank you for bringing me back. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, basically, our, our survey was, it was a quantitative project. Um, we utilized uh, hierarchical multiple regression, which is this really, from my perspective, intense statistical analysis um, to look at different themes in our data. Um, so we collected data in partnership with the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee and uh, Dr. Mitchell, who we are just so grateful for, um, particularly in their willingness to distribute our survey um, to athletes affiliated with all the Paralympic NGBs. And, um, Liz, I know you helped me with this, so thank you so much again for that and to your team. But yeah, we, we distributed survey requests via email, um, collected all the data online. Most of the items included were multiple choice, um, but we did have a couple of short answer questions in there. We didn't include the short answer questions in the analyses. We wanted to really focus on whether or not this model was applicable. Yeah. So hopefully future research in that area to come. Yeah. Yeah. And so what did you find? Oh, gosh. Question of the day. So <laughs> I was actually really excited about some of our findings simply because it, I think, provides a good framework for future research in this area and to inform different interventions with athletes. So we, to sum it up, we tested eight different hypotheses mm -hmm. and each of the hypotheses kind of captured different relationships that we were predicting based on prior research um, and based on the tripartite influence model. So we essentially tested eight hypotheses across four different models and found essentially initial support for the utility of the tripartite influence model in explaining athlete with disabilities experience of body image, yep. which is a big deal. 
Um, so to be more specific, social pressures, both in and outside of sport, significantly and directly predicted both body appreciation and body dissatisfaction. So what that means is that the degree of pressures experienced by an athlete pertaining to appearance and weight, both in and outside of sport, directly impacted how they feel about their body. And the absence of those pressures, right, like, for example, if sport was perceived as a positive or or supportive environment, which it was in many cases, was associated with more positive body Mm -hmm. image. So that tells us that interventions targeting some of these social pressures could be extremely effective in protecting against some of the body image concerns that athletes report. And so what which is really cool. What yeah, I mean that's that's great information. Can you give us maybe a couple of examples of what made a positive environment in their sporting context for the athletes? What what sort of parameters were contributing to that positive environment as opposed to a more negative environment? Yeah, I think disability sport is really unique in that sport participation tends to have a lot of benefits for athletes. And don't get me wrong, like disability sport athletes are elite athletes first, right? Mm -hmm. And with that comes a ton of stress and a ton of pressure. But what we know from research is that some disability sport athletes perceive sport as a safe context where they are less stigmatized for having a disability where they are around and get to build relationships with folks who've had similar life experiences, Mm -hmm. um, similar disabilities, similar ways of interacting with the world, and where they can really focus on their abilities, right? Like what they are capable of in a performance setting where it's it's challenging to do that in a lot of other contexts. So there are a lot of benefits to participating in disability sport from a psychological standpoint, a social standpoint, and which I'm sure you can speak to Mm -hmm. for hours, a physical standpoint right, and the health of their body. Absolutely. And they were all female athletes, correct? Mm-hmm. Were yep, from a, that's right. All folks who identified as women. Okay, and they were all from different types of para sports. They weren't all team sports. You had some individual sports as well. Yes, we had 36 different para sports represented in our sample. And different um, impairments. We types? had originally, yes, yep. Um, I think the majority of our sample, something around, identified as folks with physical disabilities in particular. Um, We had a lot of folks also with uh, sensory impairments, so athletes who identified like visually impaired or hearing impaired, and then sometimes athletes who reported disabilities in multiple categories. Right. Okay. So a good cross-section of all the types of sports and impairments that you would have experienced in a parapopulation. Yep, absolutely. I think one of the main limitations of our study is that we didn't get as many folks as we hoped. Like we had hoped to recruit upwards, I think, of 350 participants. Mm -hmm. And our total sample size at the end of the day was 136, which is why we used some of the analyses that we did. So there's definitely a lot more work to be done um, in order to generalize our findings to the Paralympic population as a whole. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, even getting 136 participants from female from US female para athletes, I mean, that's that's more than what most countries would have available, even across all of their male and female athletes. So it's still a, a significant sample, and and certainly getting research done by surveys is is notoriously difficult in terms of just getting people to answer questions. So (laughs) well done in terms of getting that many people. (laughs) Absolutely. You are capturing my experience over the last three years. (laughs) So 
what do you think are some of the things that can come out of this in terms of how can we change that body image experience and, and the pressures on female para-athletes? And obviously, would you, well, actually, let's take that step back. Do you think there's a difference between female and male para-athletes in terms of the way this tripartite model would work? Yes, my, my short answer to that is yes. I imagine while athletes who identify with different genders will have some similar experiences, there's a huge body of research outlining differences in the experience of body image between samples of women and men athletes. So I, I absolutely think that future research is extremely important to really help us pinpoint the targets for intervention um, in enhancing body image for men athletes. I also think uh, there's maybe an enhanced stigma in different social groups related to talking about body image and eating behaviors or concerns, right, where it might be much more challenging to discuss that topic in that setting and much easier or, or more part of the norm in another. Yep. So I think that absolutely would affect the recommendations that I would make based on our data. Mm-hmm. Was any of the findings that you got surprising to you like did it reflect what you'd already seen in the in the population that you'd worked with or were there things that came out of that that you went oh I hadn't even really thought of that or that was a little bit different than what I was expecting yeah that's a really good question as well I think in the original tripartite model there are two factors Um, they're both cognitive factors so have to do with the way that we process information or or think about our bodies Um, these two factors play a really significant role in the relationship between social pressures and body dissatisfaction, right? So the factors are internalization, which is the degree to which individuals buy into these social ideal bodies, Mm -hmm. right? Like we consume media on a daily basis and there's all sorts of images that portray the type of body that society thinks we're quote unquote supposed to have or a socially constructed definition of what it means to be an athlete or what it means to be beautiful, right? So the degree to which athletes buy into these ideals influences the degree to which they experience pressure, which influences their body image. And the other one is the kinds of comparisons um, that folks engage in, right? So social comparisons can show up just in terms of comparing your body with someone else's comparing your weight with someone else's or how you eat. For athletes, it often shows up in comparing fitness or muscle strength or, or weight, actually, in a lot of ways. So the degree of social comparison behaviors that folks engaged in also had an impact on their experience of pressures and body image. And this is uh, all to say that one of our most surprising findings was that social comparisons for athletes with disabilities had a much more significant impact on the relationship between pressures in the sport in particular and body image than internalization, which is different from prior research on this model um, where internalization played a more central role. Right. Um, and this, this uh, impact of social comparison actually showed up a ton in my work, you know, and I'm sure the athletes can speak to this better than me, but a lot of folks I think in disability sport uh, spend a lot of time thinking about their body, right? Um, whether it's going through classification to determine whether or not you compete, um, whether or not it's it's focusing on what your classification is relative to the other folks on the court um, to see 
how much playing time you're going to get or, or what role you might play. There's a lot of comparison that goes on and some of it can be helpful and motivating and some of it can have a really negative effect on athletes' mental health. Yeah. Wow. And so what do you think needs to be done to improve that, to, to reduce that pressure or that that experience? Do you think it's more support from you know people who are trained in sports psychology or do you think there's systematic sort of changes that could be made coaches and other support staff and from managers and and people who are involved in in running sport yeah you know I think that's a really big question Um, and and I'm not an expert obviously on like how the classification system has been structured and really how Paralympic sport in in general is, is structured but my response would be threefold I think so first I think it's really important to build awareness of the impact of social interactions, whether they're obvious and overt or they happen inside our heads on the way that we think about ourselves in sport, the way that Paralympic athletes perceive themselves in their bodies. I think the more that we can educate both athletes and high-performance staff on some of the processes that we examined in our study, in particular, the more that we can educate folks on different social processes that can have a harmful effect mm-hmm. will really help, I think, to build awareness around, I guess, aspects of the culture that support athlete health and well-being and those that do not. So that would be where I would recommend that we start. Mm-hmm. You know, like most folks that I work with don't even know that social comparisons mm. um, related to body and weight can have a detrimental impact on them in any way, whether it's their experience of stress or body image or health or what have you. So that's, that's always a good place to start. Yeah, just actually knowing what's influencing totally. the way you think about yourself. Because, you know, and we'll, we'll bring it back to the primary topic of the, of the podcast in terms of nutrition. The whole body image relationship with disordered eating behaviours, that link is very strong, as you said early on. And obviously disordered eating behaviours influence nutrition outcomes, including performance-related nutrition outcomes. And so, you know, there's a mm-hmm. full impact of that of that self-awareness and self-image that it has on so many aspects of performance, not just the mental side of things, but also the physical side of things, that I think we really need to get a good handle on this because if we can improve eating behaviours and improve by improving body image, then we can have a massive impact on performance, do you think? Yes, absolutely. I I agree 1000%. And another piece of that, which you and I have talked about before, is just really relying on collaboration between multidisciplinary professionals to support athletes. Mm -hmm. Navigating disordered eating concerns and body image concerns is so important. You know, you have a very specific expertise and skill set that I don't have um, and where folks get in trouble is when they try and practice outside of their lane. Yep. Um, so this is, is a really great example for why high-performance teams and open communication among team members and collaboration among team members is so important so that we can intervene from a lot of different angles to help athletes change some really unhealthy behaviors and perceptions when they come up and on the flip side to enhance the positive ones, the ones that are working. Yeah, Okay. And so what recommendations would you give practitioners, coaches, you know, people who are involved in supporting para-athletes in, in various ways? What, what specifically do you think are some suggestions you can provide them? Yeah, so my first thought is for all folks involved, 
um, in high performance endeavors, really develop some self-awareness about how you communicate um, related to issues of body and weight, in particular with populations like elite athletes that are at higher risk for concerns in this area. Uh, there are a lot of different empirically supported interventions that can provide support for staff around discussing body image with an athlete, which sometimes can be really uncomfortable. There's also resources around how to refer to a mental health provider, how to identify flags or risk factors that might mean somebody's struggling. Uh, so my recommendation, first and foremost, is to do your homework yep. and, and reach out to folks who have expertise in the area to to help you figure out a, a system or a way of supporting your athletes that's specific to the needs of your team. Yep. And I guess I have one question as a sports dietitian. Like one of the things that we do as a regular part of practice is we do body composition assessments. And you know, someone mm-hmm. who's well-trained in that area takes a lot of care to make sure that the athletes understand, and the coaches uh, in particular, understand the process and what that information means and keeping it confidential and all of those components. But at the same time, you know, obviously it's drawing awareness to someone's body image and the shape and, and nature of their body. Some people think that we shouldn't do body composition, but I think it's it's an integral part of understanding how training and other interventions, including nutrition interventions, are shaping performance parameters for the athletes. Any specific thoughts on doing body composition? And, and if you're not comfortable answering that, just just say so. Yeah, no worries. I mean, my response there is always to defer to the experts, right? So if you as a sport dietitian believe this is an important component of your practice in supporting athletes, then by, by all means, yes, I would support you in that. I think my recommendation along those lines would be like if we're working with an athlete who we know is struggling, right, or who might have a history of body image or disordered eating, that we adjust the way that we integrate work related to body composition or weights, right, into their training. For example, sometimes it's helpful to do blind weights Mm -hmm. for athletes so that we kind of can put the focus on behaviors or statistics per se that are, are healthier than focusing really specifically on weight or or calorie intake. And, you know, obviously that depends on the case for sure, but there are always adjustments that can be made, at least from my perspective, and the type of information that we prioritize in our sessions, what information athletes use to track their own um, progress and outcomes rate, uh, and then what information that we're able to share as we we go along can be a really good way of of normalizing the inclusion of, of statistics like that. And in this work and also being mindful that some of it might be triggering for folks, right? So adjusting our approach again to meet folks where they are. Yeah. And what about screening tools? Do you have, are there some screening tools that you use to get a sense when you first meet an athlete about their body image? Like, Or is that something that still really needs to be developed? There are some screening tools that are available. I will say that very few of them have empirical support in populations with disability, which is a, a gap in the research that needs to be addressed. I think in terms of my own practice, I tend to practice from a biopsychosocial model. So I look at um, biological or physiological factors that contribute to performance and health, psychological, um, emotional and cognitive factors, and then social factors. And 
typically when I meet with someone for the first time, I'll try and get kind of an overall picture of what's going on for them, how they're living their life, what their worldview is, how their cultural identities might impact what's going on for them, et cetera. And then once I've done that initial assessment, if we've found that body image and eating behaviors might be a source of concern or stress for the athlete, then we would go down the route of, of specific assessment. So I think I think screeners are great and helpful and can be useful to track progress over time when they're empirically validated in the population that you want to use them with. And also clinical assessments can do the same mm-hmm. thing. Yep. Okay. So the, the, the absolute value of having a, a trained sports psychologist who can run through that process is obviously highlighted there. What about athletes? Absolutely. Do you have any specific recommendations for athletes or people who are thinking of becoming an athlete or even their parents or supporters? Any recommendations that you have for them? I think the first one that comes to mind is just really being mindful of the information that you're paying attention to. Like, so we know in an elite sport, like what you pay attention to really matters. It matters for performance, it matters for mental health, it matters in particular for body image Mm -hmm. across populations. And, you know, it's pretty obvious when you're looking at different media sources or or different blogs or stories, um, if somebody's struggling or not, or or if uh, a particular depiction of the human body is is realistic and uh, positive or not, right? So... I often like to work with folks on developing what we talk about as media literacy, right? So knowing what to look at that's healthy and avoiding or disconnecting from different sources of information that are unhealthy. It's a good one to start Mm -hmm. with. Another one is is really paying attention to what you love about your body, right? There's this whole concept of, of body appreciation that is receiving a ton of support in terms of its ability to enhance mental health and performance in some aspects. So if there are aspects of your relationship with your body that are are positive and valuable and mean a lot to you, put your attention there and then work on building and strengthening those aspects of your relationship and spending less of your mental time and energy on the things causing you distress. Perfect. Yeah, such a, I mean, that, that passes over into so many different aspects of performance. Yeah, you, you can work on some of your, your weaknesses and and I think you know as, I I had an interview with an athlete early on Mitch Schooley who's a a para alpine skier and he actually said you know he's a very experienced athlete and he said you know as athletes we're very good at pulling apart the things that we're not good at because that's what we've got to work on mm-hmm. to become better athletes and so the focus is generally often on what you're not good at or what's not good rather than on what you are good at and and what your strengths are and and the positive sides of things so it's kind of a a natural kind of aspect of athletes that that does focus a bit more on the room for improvement as opposed to the the areas that aren't and I, I think that's quite critical to to always remember that there's really positive things that you can also focus on and and use as as a really good positive feedback to yourself yeah the other piece of that too i think that's important to emphasize is that sometimes it's not just the difference between positive and negative right yeah sometimes there is this neutral space in our relationship with our body um, and a way to connect with that space is finding ways to be grateful for what your body allows you to do you know i think for most paralympic athletes competing in their sport is something that's really valuable mm-hmm. 
to them, right? And, and your body allows you to do that um, in many different ways. It allows you to connect with other people, to navigate your world, to eat, right? Yeah. To touch other people. It's uh, a source of information and experience that a lot of us don't pay a lot of attention to. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's another way to kind of circumvent what can be a challenging dichotomy, right? This negative positive dichotomy for some folks and really connect with your body in a different way. Yeah. Fantastic. Brooke, uh, I could talk to you for hours, <laughs> but I know you've <laughs> got a really busy schedule and, and obviously we'll look forward to some publications coming out from your work and, and for the future that that may hold in terms of the recommendations and some changes that may be afoot uh, from a structural level. And so, Brooke, where are you working right now? Are you still working with Paris Board or is that something that you plan to do? Also, another excellent question, Liz. Right now, I'm the postdoctoral fellow. Um, my title is Sport and Performance Optimization Postdoctoral Fellow with Howard Head Sports Medicine um, and Vail Health. Um, we're located in Vail, Colorado, but we work all across the valley. Um, so in my role, I'm providing both mental health and performance enhancement services to elite and professional athletes, to patients from Howard Head Sports Medicine who have maybe recently been injured or are recovering from surgery, um, as well as athletes in the Eagle County community um, and the mountain communities more broadly. And it's, it's been such a, a wonderful opportunity to kind of blend my training in, in health psychology and sports psychology. Um, and we're working to really build out the program here. So hopefully more things to come there. I would love mm -hmm. to return to working with athletes with disability at some point or even to integrate it into our program here. I am kind of open to all options at this point. <laughs> Gentle plug for any, mm -hmm. any opportunities that may come up. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. As long as I'm working with athletes, I'm fine. <laughs> so I like to finish mm -hmm. off my podcast by asking people what's their favorite food. So here we go, Brooke. What's your favorite food? Oh, gosh, you'll laugh at me for this one. Uh, my absolute favorite food is bacon. Um, I was not the, expecting that. The best birthday present ever. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay. I know. Um, goodness. And so, you know, coming from the U.S., everyone's very focused on turkey bacon. Is it turkey bacon mm. or pig bacon or, or like, what's your, do you have a preference? Let's get specific. No, I... <laughs> That's a good follow-up. I am working on minimizing, of course, um, the footprint that I'm leaving on our environment. And I have to admit, my absolute favorite is millionaire pig bacon. And this is bacon that has cayenne pepper, brown sugar, black pepper, just baked right into it. And I could eat a lot of that any day of the week. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, <laughs> Sounds like something that everyone needs to go out and try at least once. Yeah, but maybe not like a regular part of your <laughs> nutrition recommendations, right? Oh, you know, everyone's got to have a treat now and then. Yeah, I appreciate that, Liz. I'm going to take that one with me for sure. Oh, dear. Well, Brooke, I really appreciate, as I said, I really appreciate your time and, and your insight and I think it's, yeah, it, there's so many things we could talk about. I, I really would like to come back and focus on a couple of nitty gritties maybe in a future podcast. And, yeah, that would be awesome. And, yeah, let's yeah keep the good work up. I mean, I think there's so much that still needs 
to be looked at in that space and and it's such an important area i was just done a recent podcast with Danny Totoro, who's the manager of athlete wellbeing and engagement for Paralympics Australia. And she was talking about the resources that Paralympics Australia has been putting together for para athletes in the, you know, in the mental health side of things, but it kind of covers that broader spectrum and it's not just sports psychology. There's a lot of different sort of aspects to that. And so I think, you know, sports, and, and organisations are certainly looking at that space more. But, yeah, it, hopefully your work will ramp that up a little bit and um, make it a bit more global. I hope so, too. You know, I, I'm uh, all about the message that mental health and physical health are the same, right? Like our mind and our body are totally connected. Um, and the way that we are feeling, the way that we function off the court directly impacts our ability to perform on the court. Mm. Um, so any initiatives kind of along those lines, I absolutely support. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Brooke. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing a bit more from you and, and maybe talking to you again in the future. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Liz. This was so much fun. <laughs> I think Brooke's research really highlights the importance of truly understanding the positive and negative influences on body image specific to para-athletes and not just making assumptions that someone's body image is going to be positive or negative or neutral, but really finding out more and collaborating with colleagues to understand what space the athlete is in. Because if you can address that in a really positive manner, it has such a huge impact on athlete well-being and also on performance because it has such an impact on so many areas of their athletic life. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to share them with your social media and get the word out there. I'm also really keen to hear any suggestions on topics or people you'd like to hear from in future podcasts by leaving a message on our podcast website. Please join us next time as we focus on para powerlifting with Mary Hodge.